Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. So traditionally, you do your lesson plan, and sometimes as teachers, we don't think about how language is going to impact our lesson, especially in science. So that is where it comes in that every teacher is a language teacher, and that is how you give 100% of your students access to 100% of your content. And I saw that impact roll over into those other subjects, reading, writing, and math, because of what we were supporting and how we were learning in science. So I used this kind of cheekily, this hashtag on social media, you know, bees changed my life, but it really, they really have. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... And then as a teacher, it's that I created this book that came from a lesson I taught, you know, and that just kind of morphed into this book and this story I just felt I needed to tell. And giving those resources to teachers. So if you don't know what a P-Bell is and it just sounds too daunting and you don't think you could implement it, there's a very easy lesson plan in the back to follow. I include all kinds of resources. People can also go to my website and find resources. going to be environmental scientists today, you tell your students. This middle school class of diverse learners has really taken to this outdoor problem-based examination of native pollinators. Having learned about colony collapse disorder, everyone is particularly focused on bees. This is a snapshot of what you might experience in Brittany Odin's special ed classroom. It's part of an especially popular example of problem-based enhanced language learning, or PBEL, which Brittany first came across through Arizona State University. Brittany joined Ian to discuss the nuances of PBEL, the utility of science in the special ed classroom, and her new book about mobilizing to save bees. Let's talk about the central problem that you have identified, and that's the lack of science in the special ed classroom. So. You have taught students in self-contained special ed classrooms, mm -hmm. and you noticed that science was poorly covered at best, if covered at all. Correct, yeah. You know, what, why do you think that is the case? So as a new teacher, um, passionate about science, uh, and we can cover that a little bit later, but mm. I noticed that my class that I had had no science on their schedule. I taught seventh and eighth graders and here eighth graders are tested on science. So I found that kind of alarming. So I, my principal let me change the schedule and I go on my merry way. I'm teaching science. And then I start networking with other teachers, special ed teachers. And I notice that science isn't really a focus. It might be on the schedule. Um, it might not be. And so I started asking myself that question, like why Is this a topic or a subject that these students don't have access to? And kind of what I find have found through my own, I guess, research and observations is a couple things. Two things I, I point out to people is, one, in special ed, we tend to work in a discrepancy model where we focus mm -hmm. on what students, skills that students are lacking. And because of that, we focus heavily on reading, writing, and math. Those are our service areas um, when students have IEP goals or minutes as a special ed teacher I have to meet. It is always reading, writing, and math. Uh, so science isn't necessarily an area that we focus on those skills. The other thing I've noticed is not for the teachers not wanting to, but it's a lack of knowledge and feeling comfortable with the content, having no curriculum, um, not knowing how to teach diverse students science when the teacher doesn't have that background knowledge because in teacher preparation programs we have one semester class on science and that's it it's science methods um, so we don't focus on teachers feeling comfortable and then like i said no curriculum 
supplies, supports. It's just, it's not there because in, in special ed, as you know, we're hyper-focused on those skills. We have to make up reading, writing, math. So those are kind of just through my own personal observations and working in the field, what I've discovered in networking and talking to other teachers and trying to find out why. That was my question. Why is this not happening? Um, my students are being cut off from an entire content area. And so that's kind of what started my push and my mission of more science and special ed. Do you think, or, or maybe you have documentation of this, is this U.S. specific? Is this specific to Arizona where you teach? I just say this knowing that we've had listeners from over 60 countries and you know all over the different states and provinces in Canada and the U.S. So some people might be listening, nodding along, going, yes, I totally can relate to this. And other people might be like, oh, that maybe that's different from my experience. So yeah. it, do you find that it's Arizona or U.S. specific? So um, obviously I started in Arizona because that's where I taught. And I love to go to conferences, professional development. And I noticed that there was never representation for my students. So in turn, I thought, well, I'll start presenting at conferences and be that representation mm -hmm. that my students deserve. And so through that, I've been able to network with other educators that have kind of come up to me afterwards and agreed. Speech um, pathologists have attended my sessions and I've presented in a few different states. So um, and the more I reach out and I have, you know, colleagues and, and friends across the United States that work in education, this seems to be uh, something that I'm finding in the U.S. I haven't had too many connections outside of the U.S. with this problem specifically. I took a, co a course in my master's program, which was looking at education systems across the world. And it was really interesting to see that there are some differences, obviously, but there were really a lot of similarities in pros and cons in education struggles that we have here in the U.S. are also struggles in other parts of the world. So while that class obviously didn't dive into specifically science and special ed, there was a disconnect and there was struggles for other countries and how to support diverse learners. So I would imagine we might find the same thing in other countries as well. Sure. And of course, as any educator knows, sometimes this is often educator to educator. I've had the good fortune in a lot of the special ed classrooms that I've taught in working with both fellow teachers and educational assistants who probably don't get the support and respect that they deserve in a lot of cases. I mean, they're on the front lines, often doing the grunt yeah. work. So, you know, like a big shout out to EAs I've worked with. And the folks whom I think have been most effective are those who focus on the opportunity model as opposed to this deficit model and really embrace the idea of neurodiversity and it's like okay maybe this is an area that gets you into some stressful territory but you also have this remarkable ability to hyper focus which is something that can present itself in some students who are on the autism spectrum and that can lend itself really well to certain sciences or certain activities in science you described yourself as a former reluctant scientist, was it sort of seeing how your students reacted so positively to science that sort of shifted you away from that reluctant scientist? Or, or it's probably, as with everything, it's probably more complex than that. Um, it is. So actually, the funniest thing is when I spoke earlier of that methods class, you get one class as in your teacher prep program on scientific methods and how to teach it. And I had up until that point, I was a 4.0 student. My grades were very important mm -hmm. to me. I actually never really experienced science. I was actually homeschooled for junior high and high school. So just like these teachers I mentioned, the problem is I was not familiar with the content. So my professor, actually, she's the one that called me the reluctant student. And I have since <laughs> learned that she uses me as an example in her classes, which uh. I thought was hilarious. And she is my science mentor and we still meet regularly. So it started out in her class and it all started because I was worried about my 4.0 if I'm being completely transparent and honest there. But as we got into her class and she had very high expectations, the way she modeled science and the way she took us through the experiences was completely eye-opening to me. And that science no longer, I guess, was a scary subject or I'm not smart enough. 4.0 student, right? And I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm smart enough or like 
to learn science or to understand it. And of course, there are areas I, I still don't. Environmental science is my preferred area. So yeah, once I graduated or had her class, which I got at AN, she started to instill that love of science. And so then I was thinking about my future students and how much I wanted to impart that kind of experience or journey that I had in realizing my love of science. So from there, I put science on my schedule. There was one eighth grade student. He was not real happy with me because <laughs> the previous year, they only did it sometimes. But other than that, the majority of my students were so engaged and seeing their journey through something I had just experienced, kind of this awakening or learning, being introduced to science in the, the manner I was, was, was to me just absolutely this has to be done. This has to be in, in special ed. And that is what led me to why isn't it? Because my students were engaged. They didn't come in asking me what we were doing in reading. What comprehension strategy are we working on? <laughs> right? They were, um, what are we doing in science? And I would tell them, you know, if we were being engineers, like today we are engineers, this is what engineers do. And this is what they problem solve. And so they would ask, Hey, when are we going to be engineers next? Or when are we going to be environmentalists next? So I used that language of science to see, help them see themselves as scientists. And that's kind of what led me when I got into P-Bell. And I know we'll talk about that later with ASU, where it really clicked for me and my students, because I had already been working on that language of helping them see themselves in science. And so that's kind of where my uh, self-described reluctant student was, and it came from just not knowing. A little bit of the, I don't know this content, I don't think I'm gonna be good at it. And so it made me nervous. And so I definitely empathize with special ed teachers now as I'm trying to you know, help them. I've, I've coached schools and teachers. I know where they're coming from because that is exactly why I was reluctant in the beginning as well. The first few steps into a lake or the ocean are always the most <laughs> uncomfortable. And then you dive in and you're like, oh, this is too much. And then it's okay. Right. And then you're like, I'm never going back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is almost an unfair question, but like, what were some of the activities that just really clicked with your students that they were just so into and like you couldn't pull them away from? Oh, my goodness. So one was when we worked on uh, pollinators. And this was after I'd been doing P-Bell for a few years. So I you know, had it under my belt. But we partnered with another school in the district. And they learned about bees and hummingbirds. And we learned about bees and butterflies. And so we took data. We went out and did observations. My school or my students experienced habitat loss. The landscapers came and like chopped all the flowering bushes down oh. and they were devastated. And that first initial moment of, oh, we're in the middle of this unit. Like, how do I bounce back from this? And then just on the fly, well, we just read about habitat loss in our classroom. Now you're seeing it in your community at your school. They were so engrossed in that unit. Um, we got painted butterfly or painted ladies butterflies yep. and so they got to see them in our classroom kind of go from the caterpillar to the their chrysalis and then we released them into the area that had experienced habitat loss and then we zoomed this was before covid so the other teacher and i connected our two classes and this is the great thing about p-bell is we logged them in got them started and the students ran the presentation. Each class presented to each other. They had to answer the questions. They had to explain what they did and what they learned. And as teachers, we just sat back and we saw the students. This is self-contained. So this is seventh, eighth grade. These are students with mild and moderate intellectual disabilities, students with autism, students with traumatic brain injuries, and they are engaged with each other over Zoom, telling them the research and what they learned and then the solutions they implemented. So that I think was the one that comes to mind where they just, oh, they were so devastated when those bushes were gone and they were concerned, you know, really. And that motivated in the classroom, them reading, right? It wasn't a chore. It wasn't like, oh, I can't read. I don't want to, or that student that would never read out loud. It was like, what are we going to do, Mrs. Odin? And so we researched and we read and we learned what we could do. So that's when I think science is so important in special ed because it takes away, not that they're all of a sudden better at reading, right? They're still struggling, mm -hmm. but they no longer 
are as self-conscious or as intimidated because they are so engrossed in the content and finding out what they can do to help this problem in their community that kind of some of their defenses and their their self-confidence is is bolstered up and they feel like they can do it yeah and i think it's a reminder that when we're reading we're ultimately doing it for a purpose and if it's research it's to find particular information and if in that example they're say finding information about native pollinator plants that appeal to species like painted ladies they're going to be less focused on words they don't know or stumbling blocks in reading and more on let's get that info to help us with this broader project ah that just sounds great no one can see because we're not (laughs) actually recording the video but we're both big smiles you can hear it in our voices (laughs) i hope so it was really powerful Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. The orange fiddlenecks are fully in bloom on this spring morning. As expected, several bees are busily working the yellow-orange flowers. On one of the plants, a clump of leaves appears to be loosely strung together with silk. This looks interesting. Well, let's talk about PBEL, so I'll just give it a definition here. So problem-based enhanced language learning. So most of our listeners are very familiar with problem-based learning. Mm-hmm. And enhanced language learning, some of our listeners may have taught students who are either English language learners or need extra assistance with mastering L1 or language one. Mm -hmm. Um, So beyond that basic definition, uh, can you give us a brief overview of PBEL? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, it takes problem-based learning and how I kind of describe it or like to think of it is PBEL elevates PBL. So it elevates it to that next level by supporting the student's language acquisition. So the focus of PBEL, and it came through a grant um, out of Arizona State University, their focus is to give 100% of the students access to 100% of the content. And I know when I say that, sometimes teachers are like, oh, that's a big ask, or there's no way that can be done, right? <laughs> PBEL, through their research, saw strides being made and saw great gains by supporting the language acquisition. So that's why it's PBEL, the enhanced language learning, is that intentional planning for intentional, meaningful language, because it is possible to give 100% of the students access to 100% of the content. So intentional planning for meaningful language, that I think is probably a pretty important phrase to unpack in there. So in the context of the classroom, what do you mean by that? Absolutely. So intentional planning for meaningful language is looking at, so traditionally you do your lesson plan and sometimes as teachers, we don't think about how language is going to impact our lesson, especially in science, right? Hmm. So I do these conferences and the very first, one of the very first ones I did, I boldly stated that every teacher was a language teacher. And I kind of noticed a shift in the room and one very brave teacher was like, I'm a science teacher. Like I'm not. (laughs) And I was like, okay, let me define that. And this kind of goes along with that intentional planning for language. Yes, you're a science teacher. I don't mean you're a language teacher as in reading, as in grammar, uh, the syntax of a sentence, right? I mean, the language students need to know to access the content. So just as I stated when I did science with my students, okay, today we're going to be engineers. Okay, today we're environmentalists, and this is what they do. So it's giving those language supports to the students so that they can participate in the academic discourse. So when we're teaching skills and we need to compare and contrast, right? So when we did our unit, um, the pollinators I just discussed, we did observations in the garden and we did observations at the tennis courts, two very different areas of our campus. 
we had to learn what it sounds like to compare and contrast what that academic language would sound like. And so that's what it means by intentional planning for language. I don't want teachers to get hung up on, I'm not a grammar teacher. I don't have time to teach that. You are looking at the language students would need to access your lesson. If we're talking science, like your science lesson. So that is where it comes in that every teacher is a language teacher. And that is how you give 100% of your students access to 100% of your content. You're doing it by purposely embedding, this is the language they need. What do they need to know? Do I need to model? Do I need to explicitly tell them we're comparing and contrasting? This is what it sounds like and give them those language frames, give them those language supports they need to be able to access it. So it's kind of like a, a language focused form of scaffolding, really? Yes, absolutely, yes. Scaffolding is certainly one of the big terms that I think any pre-service teacher is very <laughs> familiar with. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> so with English language learners, people who are learning English as either a second or third or, or on and on language, how does all of this potentially apply? So as I said, this is out of a grant from a, uh, Arizona State University, and they formed this, this committee or this group called I Teach ELL Arizona. And we, they looked at the six principles of ELL, English language learners, and Arizona, for those of you who may not know, is a very, we have a very high population of ELL learners, and not just Spanish, we actually have a large population of refugees here also. Mm. So kind of, we have a big mixing pot, a melting pot of languages, but they looked at the six principles of ELL and how supporting that language supported the students in the classroom. So their focus was not on special ed. As I was involved with the committee, I was on their program enhancement team. I started to see parallels between ELL students and my students. So really for how that supports English language student or learner is again, it's the language acquisition. So they're lacking in language skills in English if that's not their first language. So but you're still able to give them 100% access to the content through language support, scaffolding that language, language acquisition. And so that is how the grant started and PBEL's focus was on ELL students. And you then found that it connected very well with your students with ex exceptionalities in the special ed classroom. Right, so I started going to the grant and we were focused as I learned more about those six principles. I started asking myself, well, could this benefit my students? Because I was seeing as I learned more, um, I previously did not teach explicitly like ELL learners. I was unfamiliar with the six principles. But I noticed that ELL students have challenges with expressive and receptive language. Yeah. And I noticed, so did my students. Most of them received uh, speech therapy services. And so I, just, I asked myself, how could this work or what would this look like in my own classroom? Um, I attended a couple trainings and without really knowing what I was doing for that first one, just kind of jumped in and thought I'll see what happens, um, how it supports my students. And I found, and I tell teachers at conferences, that this is probably the number one thing I implemented in my classroom that had the biggest impact on my students. And I saw that impact roll over into those other subjects, reading, writing, and math because of what we were supporting and how we were learning in science. So I kind of, exactly, I started with the ELL and started questioning, you know, I'm seeing similarities between ELL students and special ed students who struggle with language. If I supported my special ed students like the ELL learners or students are being supported, what would happen? So that kind of started my journey with PBEL in my own classroom. We won't get into full detail about the six principles of ELL, but what's kind of the essential takeaway from those? Basically what it, it kind of encompasses is the language acquisition, kind of meeting them where they're at mm. and then, and not, so a lot of times uh, in Arizona, we have this, this law that comes, sometimes gets misinterpreted that you can't teach in English to ELLs. You have to use, or I mean, in Spanish, you have to use English. But yeah. the, the principles are basically that you're supporting the first language while helping them acquire that second language with language supports. So it all comes down to supporting the ELL learner, student, or if an adult is learning another language, kind of supporting them where they are. But modeling, language acquisition, embedding that language, giving them 
multiple entry points into whatever they're learning to access the content through the language. Yeah, I, I mean, I have taught in ELL classrooms where there were literally signs on the wall that said English only. And I think people are now waking up to the fact that that isn't That's necessarily, not, it's just, yeah, yeah, it's not supported by the, what we know. It makes me feel better to know that that's not like just an Arizona thing, but, <laughs> yeah. um, but also it doesn't make me feel better because, and in special ed, and I don't know if this is when you taught special ed, if they're identified as special ed and it's not because of the language, the special ed services trump the link, the ELL services, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so I've been in special ed. I've never really taught ELLs. I've noticed the similarities from what I do know mm -hmm. and what I have taught with special ed. But yeah, so they, I did have some ELL students with the special ed services kind of trumped whatever ELL services they would have gotten. So they didn't get ELL services. They were just with me, which double pressure to make sure I helped them with their, <laughs> their language deficits. For sure. Well, you've certainly done a lot to help them. Did you know that a subscription to Green Teacher includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles? The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive, too, and there are 120 of those and counting. To save you time, because educators never have enough of it, right? Everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Upon closer inspection of the silk-covered leaf structure, one student notices that there's a caterpillar inside. It's one you've been seeing lots of this week. You ask the student, do you remember which type of caterpillar this is? Let's talk about bees, pollinators, yes. specifically a lesson that you have created. It's very extensive. You have it on Teachers Pay Teachers, and it's called Where Have All the Bees Gone? It's been adapted by many educators. For those who aren't familiar with it, just walk us through the basic structure. I should also mention this will be in an upcoming issue of Green Teacher Magazine. Awesome. So yeah, so first this lesson, this was part of the very first P-Bell lesson I taught. I love bees. I've always loved bees. So I taught the P-Bell lesson and then I developed this lesson plan. So one thing I struggled with as a teacher, I had a vast array of reading levels in my classroom. I had mm -hmm. students working on like pre-kindergarten sight words up to an eighth grade level reader. So huge range. I know special ed teachers can definitely uh, relate to that. So what I did was I, t I started writing my own research articles for my students and I would write it and then I would level it so that I could split my students, you know, in your reading groups, you have your level A and your level B, um, your high and your low. So we would read the, the research article I wrote with their reading level because I found that while I could find maybe two different articles on, on pollinators or bees, the content was completely different and my students couldn't work with each other after that. I'd have to keep them in those specific groups. So by doing the passages this way, after we read them in our reading groups, when it came for science or for the collaboration, any student could talk or work with any other student because the content in the article was the same. So just to kind of preference how this lesson flows. So the lesson mm -hmm. flows, you have those two different levels and the research articles have a note box on the side. So I have my students as we're reading, there's a page a section on the page for them to take notes. And then after that, we do further research by watching documentaries, video, YouTube clips. Ideally with PBA, what you should do is also be bringing in community members. When I taught this lesson, I tried to get a beekeeper to come in and the scheduling just didn't work. So in the lesson plan, I encourage teachers to reach out to beekeepers, to anybody in their community, because with PBEL, it's also helping the students make connections within their communities. After that, the students identify a problem, which of course in this lesson, it's where have the bees gone? So they learn about colony collapse disorder. They learn um, about pesticides, habitat loss. As I mentioned, students experienced that firsthand when our school landscapers came in and chopped all of our flowering bushes. So the students ex go through, they find that there's multiple problems contributing to the bees disappearing. 
Then from there, through the research, they learned that in other parts of the country, they're not experiencing CCD. Um, at the time I did this lesson, Australia was not experiencing CCD, but we read about an entomologist in Ghana that they were experiencing similar problems. We learned that France started experiencing CCD and they banned certain pesticides and now their bees are coming back. So the students are doing this research and then they identify multiple solutions. So just like PBL, uh, problem-based learning, PBEL, there's multiple solutions, which I think really helps in the students' investment in it because there's not like a one set solution that all the students have to come to the same solution. So they come to their solutions, they research those, and then the most important thing is that they actually get, then get to implement them. So for the pollinator lesson I referenced earlier, we you know released painted ladies out into our garden, and then my students made seeded paper with uh, wildflowers seeds in them. So we handed them out to people to raise awareness, and then we planted some in the garden where the bushes had gotten chopped down. So that's kind of the flow of that lesson and the flow of, of a pea bell is you start with a meaningful real life problem, you research the problem, you move to a solution, and then you implement the solution within your community. With the, the seeds of the wildflowers, did the students, or how long was it until the students could actually see the fruits of their labors, see those flowers come up? So unfortunately, we did this lesson in the spring and school gets out in May yeah. uh, here. And so we planted them, but we didn't get to see them like start to sprout or, you know, bloom. So we talked about how sometimes we don't always see the fruits of our labor, but we still need to plant, you know, if it's trees or if it's flowers, or we still need to help the environment and the wildlife around us, even though sometimes we may not see how the end result is. So yeah, unfortunately they didn't get to see it at school, but we made packets for them to take home. So they got to go home over the summer and they could plant them and hopefully they saw them at home. But So they didn't get to a school, but again, that was another learning opportunity just to discuss that sometimes we don't always get to see the end result of what we do. That's right. And I'm sure if they did return to the school, they would have been able to see that these plants did in fact sprout. I mean, plants, most plants are, well, they're resilient. Incredibly yes. so. <laughs> yes, thankfully. If you were to adapt this for older students, high school students, a lot of our listeners are high school teachers, what would be some ways that you might tweak things? Yeah, so this is, the nice thing is P-Bell is very adaptable. Um, I've seen it in pre-K and kinder classes all the way up to high school and even college. So looking at the high school state standards or state standards or your standards wherever you live, here in Arizona in America, the science standards are a progression. So while in the younger grades, you may just start to learn that a bee is a pollinator or how that happens, then in middle school with this lesson, we're looking at uh, solutions and we're implementing them. So for high school, you might focus and look more into CCD. In middle school, we just introduced it and you know let them know what it is. You could research further into why scientists still don't know what's causing it. Mm -hmm. So really could get into some deep learning there, have local scientists come in and explain that. Pesticides, you could look at the chemical compound of pesticides. How, why are some pesticides okay? What makes some pesticides worse for pollinators? And then at the high school level, so. I already told you what our solutions were, but at the high school level, their campaign or their solution might be on a grander scale or might be a little bit more widely implemented. We did it at school. They took seeded paper home to share with family and friends, but a high school level, you may be able to get like the whole school involved, start a school garden. Although elementary and middle school, I've, ha I've helped teachers like start school gardens too. So at high school, it would be looking uh, we kind of did an overview, a broad overview of several problems, but at the high school level, they could do a deeper dive into each one. They could focus on just one. They could take different pesticides and test them on some plants to see what happens and are some of them more plant friendly and, you know, more friendly for the good pests in your garden? <laughs> Is it a, you spray it on and it's going to kill everything regardless of if you want to, you know, so they could look at at that and maybe even look at what makes it pollinator-friendly pesticides or more natural ways, maybe even come up with a more organic type pesticide in class and create that. So 
lots of ways to kind of deepen that learning that has started in elementary and middle school. Sure. I could also imagine that they would quickly come to the realization that not all bees are created equal and that the diversity of hymenoptera, of mm -hmm. bees, wasps, ants, and sawflies is really unbelievable. And I mean, I'm saying this coming from the temperate zone. You're in the subtropical zone in Arizona where it's even more. And that's only within just colonial bees. Then you come to the solitary bees and, and that's a whole other world. Yeah. So. yeah, there's a whole world of bees that even I'm learning. I'm just kind of getting to know more and more about, but there's a lot of bees. So they could even look at different climates. You know, mm. my students learned that Australia was not suffering from CCD. So what's happening in Australia? Is it environment? Is it government policies? Is it the way they kind of govern maybe their environmental with pesticides and stuff or Ghana. Why was Ghana experiencing things very similar to the U S so yeah, you could try, tie in all kinds of um, other standards other than just science. You could tie in, you know, some social studies standards you could tie in. Yeah. There's just a lot of opportunity there to do some cross curricular work. Yeah. The sky's the limit. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. A painted lady! Several voices shout from various directions as everyone converges at the fetal neck in question. Well, a painted lady larva! One student reminds the group. This lesson was really the starting point or the foundation of the book that you have just written, which uh, no one can see this, but I am holding it in my right hand. <laughs> it is in the Tell Me More About series. It's in fact the very first book in the Tell Me More About series by Earthy Info. It's called The Town That Brought Back the Bees. So that this is not a spoiler-driven book because the I guess the ending you could say is in the title, but how they get there is what we're interested in. And uh, I mentioned this before we started recording. I love the structure, perhaps selfishly, I love the structure of the book because it's basically the same structure as every episode of this podcast. You've got the lesson interspersed with a narrative, which is what we do around the discussions in this podcast. So tell us a bit about the book. Yeah, so the book is, like as you said, the first in a series, and it really was kind of, it kind of came out of my journey with my students of first doing this P-Bell lesson, not really knowing what I was getting myself into or the trajectory it kind of put me on. I used to, when I first did the lesson, I was getting noticed and that's how I was invited to present at conferences. That's how I got on the conference market. I was actually invited to come present. So I used this kind of cheekily, this hashtag on social media, you know, bees changed my life, but it really, they really have. So how it started is with the lesson I did and then the product on Teachers Pay Teachers, I just really started to develop this story. So the main character, Bill the Beekeeper, is actually my grandpa, after my grandpa, uh. who was a beekeeper. And uh, he used to keep bees and all of his beekeeping equipment used to be in the living room of my grandparents' house. So... <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you had to be careful uh, getting stung going and visiting grandma and grandpa. Um, 
So that was pretty young in my life. By the time I got older, the only remnants were the holes in the cement floor from when the equipment was bolted down. And I would always ask my, my grandpa to tell me about, you know, why are there holes in your floor? And my older sister sharing stories they had remembered. So that's kind of where the character came from, um, kind of a tribute to my family history and to my grandpa and bees. But, but taking the lesson, I really learned, come to learn or love rather bees and the role they play in our environment and our ecosystems and you know how tragically they are losing their habitats and you know ccd and we don't know i think for me it was kind of a little bit of that mystery that intrigued me like Mm -hmm. we're we're so advanced in our sciences sciences and scientists like how do we not know like how where where are the bees going there's no bodies they're just gone so i mean whether you're into bees or environmental science, I started getting into it and doing a little bit more research along with my students because they, their bodies had to go somewhere, right? They weren't in the hive. They weren't around the hive. They were just gone. And, you know, our agriculture really depends on these bees. And these are, you know, farmers' livelihoods, beekeepers. And so it was kind of a love of bees and, and kind of my own little family with my grandpa being wrapped up in a little bit that kind of the this, this story for a few years was just kind of developing before I finally um, was brave enough to put pen to paper, so to speak, and to get this this story out. And it's, of course, well documented that storytelling and stories take us to those emotional connections that are so resonant. And it's a very inspiring story. I mean, obviously, the title, The Town That Brought Back the Bees, I won't give away the specifics of how they go about that, but you can probably guess based on what you described of the lesson. It's a, a series of solutions that require lots of hands and lots of effort, and it can be really fun. It can be really rewarding when you see it from start to finish. And yeah. I, I found it inspiring. I read it in my own pollinator garden. I thought that was only appropriate. And uh, we'll have a short review of it in the next issue of Green Teacher as well. Awesome. One question I wanted to ask is the two of the other characters, Marianne and Nell, are in fact bees. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked in, maybe it was episode 10 of the show, about sort of finding that fine line between anthropomorphizing enough to make it relatable for younger readers, but not sort of crossing that line. Did that ever come into your mind as you were creating that? I This is almost off topic, but I'm just always really interested in this because it comes up a lot. Yeah. So I was very conscious of that as I was writing or in my head, writing the story, developing, I, I kind of went back and forth between, and the end product of the book is nothing like what I started with, of course. Um, <laughs> there are so many children's books out there about bees that do kind of, um, you know, First of all, there's there's a lot that make them boy bees. And so yeah. I had to make sure that, um, no, they're actually the girl bees. You know, mistakenly, before I got so into bees, I would show my class the bee movie and my son loves it. Um, but now I'm almost like I can't watch it because it's all the boy bees that go out and do all the heavy lifting or the work. And that's not the way it is in nature in real life. So I wanted to give kind of show the contrast between bees kept in an apiary with the beekeeper and wild colony bees. But I kind of also needed a way to identify which one I was talking about and also to be appealing to, you know, children or to younger readers. So that's kind of where I, I decided to just have like one bee representative from each of the different settings. Um, and just for ease of telling the story and what bees we were talking about and then the different challenges you know, that bees can face. So yeah, I, I, I didn't want it to be where like the bees took on this whole character and they had, you know, was more humanized or was more, you know, but they are an important part of the community that the town that is in the book and they, the town relies on them. And so they need, they were an important role in the book, obviously. And so I, I felt like just enough giving them names to kind of help with that separation in the storytelling, but not where maybe we got so off course of the realism of the environment and what happens. Uh, because after all, I wanted it to be, you know, having that science content that was accessible to students. So I felt like I didn't want to put any like misleading or misconceptions in there that mm. students might 
take for truth and think that they the bees you know had those qualities well i think you've justified that really well and for what it's worth i thought it worked i thought it was really really effective and i thought you really found that sweet spot so to speak well yeah. there's, there's a nature pun <laughs> talking about bees the sweet spot you talk about a tubric that probably familiar to some people but not to others and you talk about using a tubric in the lesson at the back of the book uh what is a tubric yeah so we're all very familiar with rubrics right we create them for yep. lessons we give them to students so a rubric is where we tell the student here's your guide to learning here are my expectations and we list them out explicitly what we're expecting points tied to them right that's kind of a tool to help the students turn in the project with all the right answers, right? Mm -hmm. So a tubric is a tool for teachers and students to use in helping them develop that guiding question that drives the meaningful real life problem in a P-Bell. So, and you can find it on tubric.com and download it. They have videos to show you how it works. Um, and it was developed by the Buck Institute of Education. They've got some amazing resources for PBL uh, problem-based learning. So basically what it is, if you actually assemble it, it's two papers you print off and one you roll up into a tube, thus tubric, ah. and you cut slits into it. And then the other one has a bunch of strips that you like feed through the tube so you can like switch the paper. And so it, it helps you build your questions. So the very first lesson I did, our guiding question was, how can we as a class support the bee population? So the very first kind of in the tube or the very first column is, who is going to do it? Is it going to be we? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be? So you, you turn the paper until you decide who's going to be working on this. So for our class, it was, it was we. And the next one is, what are you going to do? How can you, I think, create, model, plan, engage. There's all these different verbs of how you're going to engage. So it's, I think, four different sets, and you can kind of spin it around. Once you kind of get used to the format and really look at that critical guiding question, and is it a real-life meaningful problem with multiple solutions? After that, I didn't always use the tubric, but if, you're, if you want the students to start to drive that, maybe you do the first P-Bell, um, and it's a little bit more teacher-guided, and then after that, you can start kind of having the students come up and use that tool to have them develop a meaningful problem that's important to them. So it's a tool to use because every P-Bell has a guiding question that is a meaningful real life problem. That's a great explanation. So, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, I had not used a tubric and I can see myself using one someday soon. Yeah, they're kind of cool. So definitely check them out. Before we finish off, this book has just come to market, and as you receive feedback about how people have used it in their teaching and their learning in their communities, uh, what are some stories that you hope to hear about or anticipate hearing about that would make you feel like it's working as intended? So, so far it came out in August, and I've had some great feedback, everything from teachers using it in their classroom to parents using it with their small kids at home. And I've had homeschool groups reach out to me. So this book, I don't want people to hear lesson plan at the back and think like, oh, well, that's not a book to read to my children because it's a really great problem um, or a format that you can follow along with your children. So the feedback and already hearing that, that it's being used and that they're embracing it, everyone loves the format, is just that, that others are, one, learning about bees. So for me, there's kind of two facets of it. It's my love of bees and nature and that people and um, children and families and classrooms are engaging with it. They're learning about bees in their community. And so for me, that is inspiring and just exactly what I was hoping uh, would do. It makes me excited as I'm starting to write the next one in the series. And then as a teacher, it's that I created this book that came from a lesson I taught, you know, and that just kind of morphed into this book and this story. I just felt I needed to tell. and giving those resources to teachers. So if you don't know what a P-Bell is and it just sounds too daunting and you don't think you could implement it, there's a very easy lesson plan in the back to follow. I include all kinds of resources. People can also go to my website and find resources, links, reach out to me. I love to engage and help support teachers. Like I said, I've trained school and on autism school here in the Valley. 
and they did their own PBEL science fair. And so helping educators get these tools and these resources in their hands that they feel equipped to implement science with their diverse learners, whether it's a self-contained special ed classroom or it's a gen ed classroom. And really every gen ed classroom is a diverse classroom. We all have those diverse learners in front of us every day as an educator. Uh, So just helping teachers feel confident in their own ability to be able to take something like this and do it. Based on the feedback, you're already well on your way. It's working. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Brittany, for sharing your story and your insights. Thank you so much. We will have a review of the book in the next issue of Green Teacher, December 2021 as well as a link to this episode, and we will have a version of the lesson that we have spoken about as well. Great, thank you. It won't be long before these and other Painted Lady caterpillars transform into butterflies and head north. In the meantime, you and your class are closely monitoring the insect diversity in the garden. From behind you, there's another shout. Hey, have we seen this type of bee before? Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. some bushes in the back that the bees like so yeah and we're still in the upper 80s fahrenheit so (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's plenty warm very well look at this i've already taken us way off quote-unquote script so we'll (laughs) well it's all pollinators right we can yeah we'll be talking pollinators